it seems to me that at some point we have to be paying more attention to the economy that we need to have 10 to 20 years down the road and starting to evolve a public policy that begins to use some public funds to create the environment that allows the desired types of industry sectors to really grow. This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back. There is no doubt that the Montana economy is changing, and the technology sector is a big part of that change. Pat LaPointe is Managing Director of Frontier Angels, a consortium of angel investors scattered across Montana. They're focused on Montana's tech sector and have funded a variety of exciting and innovative startups, including Next Step, Transformative Med, and Cellhound. Pat, thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure, Justin. Happy to talk to you. So I've heard you say that you like big ideas. So what is a big idea? I think transformation is the way to think about what is a big idea. Um, a big idea is essentially... Anything that looks at a problem or an opportunity in our lives through a very different lens and and sees how a creative, innovative approach could lead to hundreds of thousands, millions, tens of millions of people doing things differently than they've ever done before. Let's go with that for now as a definition of a big idea. I like that. You know, when you're talking to, you know, people in Montana who are sort of, you know, kicking around at an idea, how do you know if it sort of has the potential to be big? Well, rarely do I get approached by anybody who doesn't feel like they have a big idea. Sure. <laughs> so uh, I suspect that therein lies the truth, which is that there's some subjectivity to the question of what constitutes big idea. How do we know? Usually we're looking for some evidence. We're looking for evidence that large numbers of people, or at least a large enough number of people, have somehow been exposed to the proposed solution or the alternate way of doing something and have somehow indicated an interest in it. Now, uh, one way that a lot of companies do that, particularly if they're inventing some sort of a new product, is you know they put it on, on Kickstarter. Right? Or, or Indiegogo or one of the other platforms and often will put it up long before they actually have any units to sell in part just to see how people respond to it. Uh, another way that people do it is they'll run social media or digital advertising campaigns that promote a product or a service and put a web link in for more information but simply to count the amount of traffic that they get to see just how much interest there might be out there. And so tell us about Frontier Angels and kind of where you fit in in this, in this ecosystem of budding entrepreneurs who are, who are trying to get their, their ventures off the ground. Well, the first people who usually invest in a new business are the entrepreneurs themselves. 
And normally they'll invest some of their available cash. They'll put some expenses on their credit cards until it starts getting uncomfortable and see if they can't move the ball down the field a few yards on their own. After that, normally it's friends and family. It's mom, dad, grandma, Uncle Joe, Aunt Vicky, uh, the neighbors, uh, people who think the idea might be interesting, probably aren't professional investors, but they really have a connection to the entrepreneur and they, they like the person and they trust the person and, and they'd like to see them be successful. And so normally friends and family are the ones who will then come in and give them just enough money to uh, try to progress a little bit further. Angels tend to come in right after the friends and family. We generally get involved with companies that are either still uh, pre-revenue, they don't have any customers, they have no sales activity yet because perhaps they they still have some R&D work to do, whether it's building software or doing some testing in a laboratory or whatever the case may be. So they're pre-revenue or maybe they're just started generating a little bit of revenue. They might have their first you know, one or two or five customers that have been buying from them. So angels are a class of investors who are very comfortable with risk and ambiguity and are willing to take the risk of investing our own personal money because A, we, we look for opportunities for big returns. B, we really enjoy being involved with and around innovation of all forms. Uh, C, most of us are entrepreneurs ourselves, and we really like sort of giving back to other entrepreneurs coming up behind us in some way, shape, or form. And uh, many of us are involved simply because we like to connect with other angel investors. So the angels get involved and will invest a few hundred thousand dollars and maybe in some cases a few million dollars that is basically a pool of money that comes from anywhere between 10 and, and 200 angel investors. And we'll try to help that company make its first critical technical and commercial steps in life. And then once the company starts to demonstrate that it actually has some traction, that it can overcome some of the key technical risks that might be in its path, that's when you tend to see venture capitalists begin to get interested and the VCs then come in with larger financing rounds um, in order to try to help a company begin to scale up. And so with your group, I would assume there's some, you know, there's investment, but there's also got to be sort of an advisory function helping, you know, a venture kind of pursue the right strategies or make the right decisions or, you know, put the right team together. How much sort of uh, active role in management do, do you and your, your, your partners play? You know, there are multiple ways that we take an active interest. Sometimes it's a very traditional sort of board of directors role where, you know, often we're helping the entrepreneur form their very first board of directors, right? And so we'll actually play a governance role in addition to an advisory role, coaching role. Sometimes we're just playing a mentorship role. So we have about 80-something angels in our group across the state of Montana. And as I mentioned a moment ago, most of us are actually entrepreneurs who previously have built and 
in many cases, successfully sold our own businesses. And even those who aren't entrepreneurs per se are C-level executives in, in national or multinational companies. And so when you think about the breadth and depth of the expertise, the, the business experience, the technical perspective, uh, the commercial skills that that collective group of 80 people has, it's pretty damn impressive. And so usually we're able to help find somebody in our group who has a lot of really relevant experience that they can help share with the entrepreneur and thus help them avoid spending too much time or money going down dark alleys. But in the end, many of our relationships with entrepreneurs are really just as casual advisors where you know, we try to build a relationship based on transparency and trust and uh, and a willingness to make ourselves available and be there for them. And and we'll check in with them from time to time and say, how's it going? What What's going really well? What are you frustrated by? Where would you like to go faster? Or they'll reach out for us and say, hey, I kind of bumped into a challenge that I haven't bumped into before. And have you seen anything like this? And how do I get around this obstacle? So the level of involvement can take a, a number of different forms depending upon what's right for the situation. Yeah, that makes good sense. And how does the sort of the association of of investors with Frontier Angels work? Is it you, know, you, t- you talk about the ideas and, and people decide like, oh, yeah, I want to invest in that one or that one? Or is it more of a fund that gets sort of evenly distributed across the uh, ventures you collectively decide to fund? Uh, the answer is all of the above. Okay. Um, Rarely uh, do 80 people agree on everything uh, other than, for example, in our case, uh, the strong desire to see us be able to help more emerging Montana technology companies uh, become successful and create better, more and better jobs in our communities. But as you might imagine, any particular company that might stand up in front of our group and, and tell us about themselves and, and ask for uh, investment, we might only get 10, 12, 15 people uh, within our group who are actually interested in that particular deal for whatever reason. And so when they are, we we pull together uh, an LLC or what's called a special purpose vehicle, and all of those interested people will pool their money, and then collectively we make an investment in the company. But we also have a fund, which many, but not all of our members uh, contribute money to, And our fund is essentially a way of uh, members being able to get a much more broad diversification of their portfolio much more quickly. So whenever uh, a number of our investors get together and indicate an interest in investing uh, $100,000 or more of their own money collectively in a given company, our fund will also then come in and kick in another 33% on top of that, right? So while any one investor in our group might only make five, six, seven investments in the course of a year, our fund is making 12 to 15 investments in the course of a year. Makes sense. Yeah. So, Pat, let's let's pull the lens back just a little bit. As I mentioned in the intro, you know, the Montana economy is is sort of changing and, and it feels like it's at a bit of an inflection point on a variety of dimensions. What's your kind of assessment of the state of play in the Montana economy at this moment? It's not hard to look around Bozeman or Missoula or Kalispell Whitefish, um, 
and, and see a noticeable uptick in the number of emerging technology companies that are starting across those parts of Montana. It's still a little bit harder to see evidence of that taking place elsewhere in the state, although you know, Billings has been working really hard to accelerate the growth of its technology ecosystem. And, and I think the same is true in Helena um, uh, and uh, to some degree in Great Falls. And so I guess the perspective of the rate of change depends on where you're starting from in Montana, right? right? And so we have to always recognize that there's no one Montana, obviously. Uh, it's several different Montanas at different life stages in terms of the degree to which they have these new economy companies getting off the ground. And so when we're working with the community in Bozeman or in Missoula or in Whitefish, we're working generally with people who have a, a fair amount of expertise and understanding of what it takes to build such an ecosystem and how uh, to help them go faster. Whereas when we're working with uh, economic development agencies or uh, other organizations in uh, towns in Montana where there isn't as much of an installed base, then there what we're trying to do is to help them figure out what first steps they can take to really begin to develop traction towards starting to see some of that growth. But if you look at it on the whole, which I think was the essence of your question, in terms of the sheer number of technology-based businesses that have either started in Montana or relocated to Montana in the past five years, and the number of people who are employed in those businesses, then absolutely we have seen a noticeable increase on both of those dimensions. Although I will, on the other hand, caution that we're still a blip on the map from a GDP perspective. And We've got a long way to go and a lot of work to do to get to a point where we really can be proud and satisfied together at having built a, a new economy component of Montana's economic foundation. Hey, folks, don't miss Missoula Market Watch on March 10th at 10 a.m. Tune in to this free virtual event for updates on commercial real estate in Missoula and across Montana. Hosted by Sterling CRE Advisors, you'll get an in-depth look at the state of the industrial, office, retail, and multifamily markets. Call 406-289-0683 or email info at sterlingcreadvisors.com to learn more. Raging wildfires have scorched a record number of the acres and killed at least to climb from people. those devastating wildfires. Last year, wildfires scorched a landmass nearly five times the size of Yellowstone National Park. It was the largest area burned since reliable records began. Fires are getting bigger and hotter and more devastating than ever before. But what all that fire means and what to do about it depends on who you ask. The experience of a forest taking fire is really something. It's not only a gift to us, but it's more, more of a gift to the land. There will always be fear of fire, I, I know that, and I don't pretend there won't be, but in certain situations, there shouldn't be. I'm Justin Angle, and for the last couple years, I've been talking to scientists, historians, and firefighters themselves to hear their stories. You owe it 
to the guys that died. I wanted to figure out, how did we get here? We're going to knock fire out of the landscape. Remember, only you can prevent forest fires. It was a crazy ambition. And where do we go? It just, knowledge is, is freaking power. I'll talk about it in a calm way, but this is me hitting the panic button. Am I making any difference here with the science? <laughs> That's what I wonder sometimes. This is Fireline, a six-part podcast series from Montana Public Radio and the University of Montana College of Business about what wildfire means for the West, our planet, and our way of life. Coming March 9th, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is John Twiggs with Montana PBS, and you're listening to A New Angle. So when you're talking about some of those those dynamics there, I mean, some of what I see in, in that, those trends are, you know, a, a focus on more urban areas, at least urban with, you know, within the state of Montana, um, needs for a workforce that has a different skill set. And, you know, issues associated with that, like it's sort of changing some of the, the dynamics within the population of Montana. How are you thinking about that workforce piece in particular, particularly in this technology space? We need people with, you know, who are well-educated with good skill sets and the ability to sort of adapt and learn over time. Um, I've heard a lot of leaders say that, um, you know, workforce development is a big priority. How, how is your organization thinking about it? It's difficult, uh, candidly. It's a very hard problem to solve. There are several systemic challenges inherent in solving for that, one of which is we have to be much more focused perhaps than we have been at really being targeted in trying to attract people with those skills to come relocate to Montana in order to be able to take some of the positions that our local companies have open, whether they're software engineers or salespeople or marketing people or finance people, whatever the case may be, there are a substantial number of high quality job openings in all of those areas. So first, we have to convince people to come here to build our labor pool to take those jobs, because frankly, we can't train new people fast enough. Otherwise, the the ecosystem will stall if we rely on just training, right? Now, when we try to recruit people to come here, we have a lot going for us, as we all know, in Montana in terms of uh, the quality of life and the great outdoors. Uh, And even though it may not feel that way to people who lived here a long time, the relatively affordable nature of life in Montana, particularly if one is coming from Uh, San Francisco or L.A. or Seattle or Phoenix or Dallas or wherever, right? Um, Another challenge that we have, then even if I can get a talented software engineer who might be interested in relocating here, the question is what happens to their spouse or their significant other? And and maybe that person is not uh, in a technology job. Maybe they're a banker uh, or, you know, maybe they're in some other trade. And when they think about the prospect of relocating to Montana, that other person, that second income, has to also be thinking about what their job prospects are, right? Uh, and that's a problem for us 
simply because we're still a relatively small population state, right? So I'm a big proponent of job training. I'm a big proponent of early education around technology and entrepreneurship and getting high school kids to want to study STEM fields in or business fields in college uh, so that they're coming out prepared for the workforce that we need for the future. Um, and if we do everything right in all of those areas, we're still going to have a gaping hole. And the only way for us to fill that gaping hole is to get more people with those skills to want to come to Montana in order to help our economy find those diversifying pillars and get them to critical mass soon enough that we don't lose uh, our relative ability to compete with other states in the region and, of course, nationally. Sure. I mean, what you're describing is kind of this this cultural shift. And, you know, it makes me think about we're, we're sort of soon after the, you know, the new Gianforte administration is, is sort of taken off. And thinking about our new governor, I mean, successful entrepreneur in the technology space has placed a big priority on STEM education in, in terms of his, his foundation investments and, and where he's placed intention how are you thinking about this this new administration? What are you looking for from that administration in terms of investments along the lines of some of the things you're talking about here? Well, let me start by saying that the that the Bullock administration was very friendly to the tech ecosystem. They they made a, a number of of good things happen for us in terms of. Uh, helping to fund a number of key initiatives and and to help the ecosystem uh, really begin to start to find its its traction and and start to rally around itself. And so, when I think about the the incoming uh, Gianforte administration, for me, it's less about some sort of inherent philosophy and simply more about right place, right time. Um, and so, yes. Uh, I think some of our governor's own personal experience will help him perhaps um, understand better some of the nuances required in order to get these companies built and and growing and thriving. In particular, though, I think the bigger question is that Montana has no effective public policy, really, when it comes to accelerating the growth of the tech ecosystem. So there are 41 states in the country that have uh, public policies intended to provide an incentive to invest in and grow early stage technology companies. Uh, Of the nine states that don't, uh, you have California, New York, and Massachusetts, which, by the way, are three states that simply don't need it tons of activity already, right? Uh, And then you have the Alabamas, Mississippis, uh, Hawaii's, and Montana's of the world. And, you know, it, it, it seems to me that at some point, we have to be paying more attention to the economy that we need to have 10 to 20 years down the road. And starting to evolve a public policy that begins to use some public funds to 
create the environment that allows the desired types of industry sectors to really grow. Because if we're not deliberate and focused in what we're trying to grow, we're probably going to get weeds. And and if you follow the metaphor, that's not necessarily a prescription for long-term economic health. Indeed. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Um, you know, in line with that sort of idea of policy, um, you know, whether it's public policy or policy within your group, it makes me think about, um, you know, we did an interview a few months ago with a scholar at Brown University, Banu Ozkazank Pan, and she looks at sort of diversity and inclusion within venture capital. You know, and she, she talks a lot about kind of, frankly, the overwhelming maleness and whiteness of venture capital. And you know, how are you thinking about ways to get capital flowing into into different groups of people and a more diverse set of founders? Uh, this has been a, a huge focus of mine. Um, I'm very proud to say that if you look at the total pool of investments that we've made over the course of the four years since I've been running the Angel Group, uh, 47% of our capital has gone to women-owned businesses. Uh, and that puts us in the top five percentile of all angel invest and venture uh, organizations around the country, uh, excluding perhaps those that are 100% focused on investing in, in gender diversity, for example, right? Um, and, and that takes a lot of work. It, it's a lot more effort for us to go out and, and look and find companies that are investable, attractive opportunities, and represent uh, some diversification of founders. So we're doing a pretty good job on the gender diversity front. We're really nowhere on the uh, racial diversity uh, element of it. Part of that is, of course, the population that we have here in Montana. And so we targeted gender diversity as being critically important as our first step, simply because if we are indeed going to be successful at building that next economy, it's only going to be because uh, many, many, many more women uh, step up and start creating those kinds of companies here in Montana. And we want them to know, first and foremost, that there are people here, investors and mentors who are well prepared to uh, help them overcome whatever obstacles might be in their way. As it, come, as it relates to uh, cultural and racial diversity of, of investment, I'd like to tell you that I think we're going to get better at that. And I do believe that it's true, but I believe that it's true because we're seeing simply more and more entrepreneurs of color, entrepreneurs from different backgrounds who are starting companies these days. And, and as that continues to grow, more and more of those are going to find their way to Montana as well. Sure. That makes sense. So speaking of kind of back at the level of the, the founder, you know, one thing that, that we didn't chat about at the beginning, but I'd love to, to hear your thoughts on, you know, from the perspective of a founder, an entrepreneur, somebody trying to bring an idea to life, how do you know it's the right time to seek out angel funding? When should you go after that? When should you pump the brakes and do something else? You should wait as long as you possibly can. Okay. <laughs> but not too long. <laughs> um, you should wait 
until you have some really good evidence that there is an opportunity, that you have a very unique and defensible way of solving for that opportunity, and that you've got some beginning evidence that there's a customer base out there that might be willing to buy it, then you should go talk to angels. Assuming, of course, you need money. If you don't need money, I mean, if your friends and family can, you know, give you millions of dollars to get your business off the ground, God bless. Take Indeed. their money. Yeah. Right? It's important for an entrepreneur to remember a couple of things about angels. Number one, we're investors. And we don't confuse investment with philanthropy. We have our philanthropic organization, Early Stage Montana, which is our 501c3, where we donate tons and tons of training and and mentorship to entrepreneurs to help them move down their path more quickly. And people can find more about Early Stage at earlystagemt.org. But when it comes to investment, we're looking at for the characteristics of a good return. And consequently, we need to find opportunities where that some of that evidence exists and where we think we can see and understand the risks in order to determine what kind of return we can get. And so it's not personal between us and entrepreneurs. It's more just does a particular type of, of an investment present a good risk for us? And how does it fit with everything else that's in our portfolio? Because the it'd be very bad if we were doing nothing but investing in a particular type of software app, right? Um, we'd have too much concentration in one sector and not enough coverage in others. So the first part of the answer was they should wait as long as they can, meaning make as much progress as they can toward being able to demonstrate those things that I mentioned. When I say don't wait too long, what I mean is don't wait until you're so running on fumes that you can't survive a 30 to 90 day process of working with us, talking to us, putting up with our poking and prodding and our many, many questions before we're even at a point where we can write a check to you. So it's about finding the balance. But generally speaking, reach out early, get on our radar screen, let us know what you're doing. Even if you're not ready to ask for money yet, just say hi, let us know that you're out there. Um, if you have questions about you know, technologies or, or where to find some help with things, ask us. We're, we're delighted to try to help you move further down the path. And if you never come back and ask for us for money, but your business is doing great and employing people in the state of Montana, then we're happy. We've all won. So reach out earlier, but be strategic about when you think about asking for money in the life stage of your business. Indeed. Makes a ton of sense. Pat, that feels like the right moment to bring the conversation to a close. Along those lines of reaching out and asking for advice and help and guidance, how can people find you and your Frontier Angels group online? Uh, the best way is to go to FrontierAngels.com. And when you're there, you'll find a bunch of videos that help you understand how we work, how we think, what we look for, how we like to work with entrepreneurs, uh, and guide you toward uh, what questions you'll need to answer in, in order to begin a conversation with us. Awesome. Pat LaPointe, thanks very much for coming on the show. 
My pleasure, Justin. Thanks for the conversation. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. We're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift of UM alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business, with additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors and Drum Coffee. AJ Williams is our producer. VTO Jeff Amet and John Wicks made our music. And Jeff Meese is our master of all things sound. If you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. If you liked what you heard, tell your friends about it. Thanks a lot. See you next time.